Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Ambassadors Forum Radio Show here on True Talk 800 AM KPDQ. I'm your host, Roy Swart, father of seven, MIT graduate, active engineer in the high-tech industry, and most importantly, bought and paid for bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our mission here at the Ambassadors Forum is to equip you to be able to better understand and defend your faith by thinking biblically, the same way Jesus did it. I wanted to share with you today a little about a recent apologetics youth event that I was a part of. It was an apologetics youth retreat. There was about 120 kids, and we were live streaming a conference by Stand to Reason, Greg Kokel, Tim Barnett, Alan Schleeman, and others. And so we chose to live stream the segments where people were giving talks into our retreat, and then we'd pause, and then we'd discuss the presentations that were just given, and we did something really cool. What we did is after every session, we allowed the kids to ask us in the room some questions about the topics that were just covered. And it was fascinating the way that the kids engaged with us after each of the topics. It was very interactive. And our purpose for the weekend was not to fill a notebook full of all the right answers, but we wanted to teach the kids how to think critically, how to analyze a statement and look for the underlying presuppositions or assumptions or the truths behind what was being said, break those down, take it apart and say, do these things, do these thoughts, do these concepts align with the Bible? And the kids loved it. They couldn't get enough of what was going on. So today's session, I wanted to go through some of those questions with you. So One of the questions that came up had to do with suffering. It was this, how can a good God allow suffering? One thing as Christians that we want to be very careful to do as we try and match biblical truth with heartfelt questions is if we get asked an emotional question, we don't want to give an intellectual answer. So this could be someone who their parents may have just died. They may have had a sister or brother die in a car accident. They could have had some really difficult, painful thing in their life. And they're saying, you know what? I just don't understand how God can be so good, but we can go through so much suffering. That is an emotional question, and we need to match that with an emotional answer. We need to come with compassion and love and patience. Even if we have the truth, we don't want to just rattle it off because that's insensitive. That's not meeting the heart of the questioner. Now, the flip side of that is, if it is an intellectual question, you don't want to give an emotional answer. If someone is saying, you know what, I've thought about this a lot, And I'm struggling with some of the themes, pulling out some of the themes in the Bible and kind of synergizing those together into a satisfying intellectual answer. Here's something that I struggle with. How can God be good and still allow suffering? 
Now, if we come with an emotional answer to an intellectual question, it's going to be just as dissatisfying to the questioner. They're going to say, look, that's great. I understand the love and compassion behind it, but what I'm looking for are facts. I'm really just trying to think this thing through. So one of the challenges when you get questions from the internet or they're anonymous questions, you don't know if the questioner behind the question, if it's an emotional question or an intellectual question. And that can be really difficult to answer. In this particular case, we were able to engage a little bit and it was more of an intellectual question. And so let me walk you through kind of the intellectual answer we gave. I'm going to blow through these in the time we have for the radio show today. There's a lot of resources on our website, theambassadorsforum.com. We have pointers to other great ministries like Stand to Reason, Sean McDowell, Biola. There's lots of other great resources on the internet that you can follow up with to get more complete answers. So they said, how can a good God allow suffering? And what we talked about was there's really four different kinds of causes for suffering. I'm going to give you the cause and then an example of what that looks like in real life and then what the Bible has to say about that. Again, going to go really, really quickly. Number one, one cause of suffering is the fact that people have free will. Because people can choose, they can choose to do bad things that cause a lot of suffering. An example of this is violence. People can choose of their own free will to do violence against other people. Now, where does God fit into this? What does the Bible say? The Bible says that the final accounting of difficult things, of terrible things, of suffering isn't necessarily in this lifetime. So sometimes you can look at a situation and say, that's not fair. That's not just. How could God allow that? How could God allow this person to do this terrible things to another person and cause a lot of suffering? Eventually, God is just. God is perfect. He is sovereign. And he will make everything right. It just may not be in this lifetime. Number two, another cause of suffering is God's judgment. Now, an example of this is war. The Old Testament has lots of these examples where the people of Israel would be doing terrible things and God would judge them by bringing another nation to come and be at war with them. Now, what's an example here? There are several examples of in the Bible where the people of Israel were sinning, doing terrible things. They were sacrificing their own children to false gods. That's a terrible, terrible thing. So God would bring judgment on them, war, another nation to come and conquer them. And so the Bible has to say it like this. Some suffering can end greater suffering. So God may bring that nation come and judge those people and their suffering because of the war, but what he's accomplishing in that suffering is an end to the greater injustice, which is these people sacrificing, killing, murdering their own children to false idols. A third cause of suffering is sin. 
Now, God says in Genesis chapter 3 that when Adam and Eve sinned, not only were they judged, not only did they receive consequences, but the earth itself, it talks about thorns and thistles, nature itself was judged and came under condemnation because of people's sin. What are some examples of that today? The fact that we have disease, natural disasters in our world today can be traced back to the fact that we live in a broken world. Now, what does the Bible have to say about that? Sometimes that kind of suffering can remind us that the earth is broken, which can lead us to the gospel. God says he has revealed his law, his truth to every person. He's written his law on their hearts. And so sometimes when we see suffering around us, we can say, you know what? The world is broken and there's something in me that resonates that says it ought to be fixed. It is not okay that the world would stay broken like this. What does that do? It prepares us for the message of the gospel where we find a savior, Jesus Christ, who makes everything right. A fourth cause of suffering might be impossible to trace back to one of these other three or anything else. It's just like, I don't know the mind of God. I don't know everything. What does the Bible have to say that? The Bible says that the ultimate good came from the ultimate unjust suffering. Paul says in Acts 26, 22 and 23, he's talking to King Agrippa. I stand here today testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ, the Messiah, must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people, the Jews, and to the whole world, the Gentiles. So Paul says, you know what? Sometimes we can't know exactly what's going on through suffering, but I know this is a fact. God can bring good from suffering. And the ultimate good, forgiveness of our sins, reconciliation to God, came from the ultimate unjust suffering of Jesus Christ. A second question, is there a gay gene? Now, the context of this is some people in the LGBTQ community will say, if we can prove, if we can trace this back, that homosexual desires can be traced back to a certain part of our DNA, that means that God created us this way. And if God created us this way, then we're just living out how God created us to be. And what we said at the retreat was, in my conversations on this topic, I usually just concede and say, I don't know, but let's say that there is. Let's give you that, that there is a gay gene. Let's not fight about that. Let's say for sure science can prove it. And there is a gene that says some people will be attracted to the same sex. Okay. What does that mean? Does that mean it's okay? No, of course not. And an example that came up at the retreat was God gives heterosexual people attraction to the opposite sex. 
Okay, that's something that God created people to function and the desires for them to have. Well, when a man gets married to his wife, do those desires for other women go away? No, many men may still be attracted to other women even after they're married. And you could trace that back to a gene and say, yep, for sure, men who are married may still be attracted to women other than their wives even after they're married. Does that justify adultery? No, of course not. So the idea there was just because you have these desires doesn't mean that it's okay to pursue them and fulfill them. God has given us these boundaries, given us these rules for our good, to protect us and others and our communities. Okay, the third one, they said, why is critical race theory and wokeism so popular in this generation? And what does the Bible have to say about it? The first part of this is, why is it so popular in this generation? I think the answer is, and this is a little bit of an exhortation against the church, because the church has been weak in their theology and weak in their teaching and weak in speaking the truth, it's left a vacuum. It's left a vacuum for these false ideologies, these falsehoods, these untruths, these lies to creep into our society and even now creeping into the church. Why? Because we as leaders in the church have not been careful to protect the doctrine of the church. We've not been careful to speak the truth and to stand up for the truth and to teach people how to think clearly about what these ideas are. So that's the why. The other thing is, what does the Bible have to say about it? Well, for those of you who don't know what critical race theory is, I'm going to go through five foundations of what critical race theory is and then talk about what the Bible says the truth is. Number one, some people are better than others. Now, is this true? No, of course not. God doesn't value one race above another race. He doesn't value one kind of person above another kind of person. What does the Bible say? All people are created equal in the image of God. Now, what's a second fundamental theory in critical race theory, that power imbalance is the thing that ruins everything. Power imbalance ruins everything. Now, what does the Bible say? It's actually sin that ruins everything. Sin in every person's heart, rebellion against God, disobedience against God, that is the thing. That's the root cause of a broken world that we live in today. Number three, the third lie in critical race theory is that people shouldn't be judged by the same standard. As an example in critical race theory, if you're part of an oppressed group, you can't be guilty of certain things. So as an example, black people can't be racist. White people can be racist, other people can be racist, but black people cannot be racist. They're judged according to a different standard. Now, what does the Bible say? No, there's one standard by which all men will be judged. All people will be judged by 
Christ according to the same standard. Here's an interesting fact that a lot of people don't know. A lot of people say, hey, it's not fair. If you go into a court of law, the judge should not give favor to the rich person just because they're rich. That resonates with everybody. Like, yeah, rich people shouldn't get away with stuff just because they're rich. Of course. And that's in the Bible, by the way. That's where that came from is a biblical concept. Did you know that the Bible actually says poor people shouldn't be given favoritism either? In Exodus chapter 23, verse 3, it says, You shall not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So, very important concept. The Bible says everybody should be judged according to the same standard. Number four, the fourth critical race theory lie, says every person can be grouped into two categories, either an oppressor or oppressed based on their race. Now, is that the way the Bible describes it? No, of course not. The Bible says that you can separate or categorize every person in the world into two categories, but those are believers and unbelievers. What is it called believers? Believers are all part of the same family, all children of God adopted into his family. So the fact that this idea that within the church, within the body of Christ, we can have some people who are oppressors and some people who are oppressed That's not a biblical concept. God says we are all sons and daughters of God, our Abba Father. And how do we treat each other? All the people within the body of Christ are supposed to love each other, mutually submit to one another, encourage one another, etc. Here's the fifth one and probably the biggest lie in critical race theory. There is no salvation. So if you're part of the oppressor class, if you're white, if you're a man, if you're heterosexual, you can never fix that. You can, you know, apologize, you can try and make reparations, but that never gets redeemed. You are always a bad person. Now, what does the Bible say? The Bible says there is salvation for anyone who would submit to God, who would call him Lord, who would repent of their sins, who would ask for forgiveness, and that salvation comes through Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's the third question that we covered. The fourth question, I have to give you just a little bit of context. There is a guy there, and this was funny, and whenever we asked questions, Frankie would always play the devil's advocate. And so somebody actually asked this question, like, hey, why is Frankie always playing the devil's advocate? And what we talked about was it's actually good that somebody in the church would say, wait a minute, what about this? I don't want to just let you off the hook with that easy answer. I want to push you. I want to press you and say, no, we need a better answer than that. What about this other thing that somebody might bring up? And the point there was as leaders in the church, we should be exposing our children, our grandchildren, the youth that we have been given the responsibility to raise up. We should be exposing them to difficult questions in the church. They should hear the hardest questions 
from us because if they feel a little unprepared and a little thrown off because they don't know the answer, they've got all this loving community around them to say, look, okay, you may not have known the answer to that, but I want to encourage you. I want to love you. I want to teach you where to find that truth in the Bible. I want to teach you how to think clearly and understand what a good answer for that question is. Because if we don't, if we try and coddle our children and say, you know, we're just going to teach simple Bible stories and not think deeply about our faith. We're not going to wrestle through the difficult parts of Christianity. When they leave our homes, when they go to college, when they get out on their own and start living life on their own, somebody somewhere is going to ask them a tough question. And if they're unprepared, if they haven't been trained to think clearly about how to reason through their faith and know why they believe what they believe, they're going to get knocked down and they're going to be unsettled. You better believe that person, when they see them start to shake, they're going to go after them. They're going to want to destroy that person's faith. And in part, it'll be our fault. We didn't train them. We didn't challenge them when they were in our youth groups, in our churches, in our homes to think deeply about their faith. We said, oh, you know what? That's a difficult thing. You know, God just wants us to have a blind faith and just believe. That's baloney. God wants us to have a thinking faith, a rational faith, something that's reasonable and makes sense and holds together in our minds. That's the kind of faith that God calls us to. That's the kind of faith that the Bible describes. So I said, hey, you know what? Why is Frankie playing devil's advocate? Because he wants you to be strengthened, because he wants you to be strong in your faith. Let me wrap up with a few closing thoughts that I shared with the kids at the apologetics retreat. Number one, it is so important to have a biblical worldview, not to just read the Bible and know a lot of Bible stories, but to see how God thinks. And it's revealed throughout the Bible, creation and the fall and redemption and truth absolute truth. We need to think how God thinks and have a biblical worldview. That is so, so important as Christians. Number two, a lot of people had a misunderstanding or the wrong perception of apologetics. They thought, well, apologetics is being really good at arguing, or they thought it's knowing everything. Absolutely not. Apologetics is thinking clearly. It's thinking biblically. It's being able to recognize and refute falsehoods. And one of the best ways to do that is by looking at a false argument, an opposing view, something that is opposed to the Bible, and finding the one logical fallacy in that bad argument. Many falsehoods are built on confusion rather than outright lies. They're usually a mix of 75% or 90% truth and just a little bit of lies. And if you can't recognize that and discern where the falsehood is, it might be one out of 10 or one out of 100 things. That sneaky little false assumption that's buried in a array of other truths, you're going to be swept away and you're going to be confused, which is going to lead to the wrong beliefs. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. It's been a fun radio show this week. I just want to end with this. What are you doing 
to either equip yourself or to equip those who are in your care to better understand the Bible, to better think through what they believe, to better understand and defend their faith. You can go to our website at theambassadorsforum.com. We've got lots of great resources there. If you're in the Portland area, every month we do a Friday Forum training, which is practical, hands-on. We go through questions. We hear great speakers. We have Q&A at the end. There's time to engage with the speaker one-on-one directly. I want to encourage you to come to one of our Friday Forums. Get involved in what God is doing here in Portland. I speak to lots of pastors and youth leaders and principals of private Christian schools, and they all say the same thing. Our kids are desperate for apologetics right now. They are desperate to really engage in their faith. They don't want to sit on the sidelines. They want to get involved and be strengthened and be out there engaging the culture with the answers that they've learned in the Bible and the lifestyle that they're living out each and every day. Finally, thank you for joining us on the radio today. You can join us every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on True Talk 800 a.m. KPDQ. I pray that God will raise you up in your own faith and send you out to share that faith with others in the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until next time, I'm Roy Swart. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 